Yeah, brother. There's a lot of people out there talking about us, for us, at us, but seldom with us. So it's time that we get out there and express our voices, share our worldview, and become accountable. Why? Because I am Five Fibs. A podcast that invites free-thinking black men into a shared space for unapologetic conversations about contemporary issues related to self, society, and the world. So join us for these provocative moments. Let's get at it. Welcome to I Am Five Fifths. I'm your co-host, Ahmad Mansoor. And I'm your other co-host, Bill Thomason. What's going on, my brother? Hey, man, I'm feeling my James Brown vibe coming on, brother. Oh, yeah? Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Wow. So, <laughs> what, so, so what's happening, man? Now, what, what, is, what is, first of all, let me ask you. So what does James Brown mean to you? What does it mean to have your James Brown vibe? Man, you know, I think of, you know, for, for and I'll just speak of my own upbringing, man. You know, you've heard me mention music was just a large part of my life growing up, man. You know, my mom was a musician. All my family were musicians. So it was constantly live music being played in my house, but it was also constantly music in general just going on. I remember James Brown created that anthem because that's an anthem, brother. That's a right. battle cry. Right, right. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Right. So, you know, we talked about, you know, one of the things, man, we're going to use to kick off our podcast is the five on the black hand side, right? That's it. So here's my tap. There's my, I just scared myself <laughs> a high five. Might not have been that loud. Right. So I right. hope people can hear it. But that's my segment for the day, brother. So, so you've is, been, so, so you've been thinking about some things then. Yeah, brother. I mean, the the thing, uh, if we talked about when we said, man, our five on the black hand side segment, that's our chance to just voice kind of what we've been thinking about right. for the week, for the month, for the year, whatever. That's and it. for me, it's it's been lately, man, the voice of the black man and our voice and not only our voice, man, but our activities. And say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud was an anthem. It was a battle cry for all of Black America, mm -hmm. you know? And a lot of folks don't know, man, how James Brown was impacting the civil rights movement. Now let's get it, don't get it twisted, man. James was cutting up and doing some other stuff too. But James was also a cat man that was very uh, adamant about freedom and equality for Black Americans. And what I've felt strongly lately, man, is that as a black man living in America, it's like whenever we say something or we try to do something, man, it's like everybody wants to piggyback on our on our joint, man, on our stuff. You know, it's like we can't like we can't do it well enough on our own. And, you know, sometimes I go back to BET television. And you know what BET, BET was the one of the first black, if I, and again, I'm no historian here, but if I remember, it's one of the first black owned television networks and, you know, the major television networks, you know, there were smaller ones, of course, but this is one of the, and it was also, again, going back, uh, it was also the first publicly traded 
uh, Black-owned television network or television network, if I'm correct. And eventually they got bought out. I think, I can't remember, it was Viacom or someone else. And of course it made uh, John Johnson uh, uh, very, very rich. Is it John Johnson who started uh, BET, man? That's it. I, I don't want to interrupt your five on the black. Okay. Side, yes. All right, man. All right. Well, for those out there that's listening, that's it. I'm trying to, that, whoever the president is, made uh, the founder made him very, very rich. But the point is, I've always felt strongly, man, that our voices are always being quelled. Like even when we were doing uh, BET, it eventually got bought out. And there was some great original programming on their teen summit was one, for example. I remember they had a black entrepreneurship show. And once they got bought out, all of those original programming shows just went away. And now I don't even watch BET anymore, man. You know, I heard, what is it, somebody called it, Booty and Thugs Network now? You know, it's just that I can't even watch it because I don't feel that the programming is the original programming that I wanted to see that talked about, you know, my voice and hearing from my perspective as a black man living in America. And this is what this podcast is all about, man, the voice of the black man and from our perspective. And it's one of the things, Ahmad, you so eloquently say in the introduction is that we're unapologetic. And there are just some things that ain't right. And that's one of the things that ain't right, brother. So that's my rant, is that I want people just to let us do our thing. Let black men be black men. Let us have our own television shows. Let us have our own radio shows, our own podcasts, our own record companies, our own cryptocurrency hedge funds, our own, you know, whatever it is. I wanted people to let us do our thing without trying to interrupt the things that we try to do and saying it's not good enough or we need to give you another voice or you're not diverse enough or you're not the man that uh, should be telling this particular story. That's my rant, man. That's all I got to say today. Did you just say that's all you have to say today, brother? <laughs> yeah, man, I know that ain't, that ain't right. I know oh, I got more to say, but that's, well, my, well, that's well, my close out. Well, not only do you have more to say, but what you said is full. It's a lot, brother. It, it's powerful. And um, this appears to be a theme that continues to, to resonate. And even though we have some other topics planned for the show today, I, I kind of want to spend a moment on here. And I, I believe that I could add something to your five on the black hand side. It, it may connect with it a little bit. I'm not going to take as much time because I think yours really sits in a very prominent place. Um, what I would add is my five on the black hand side is this whole idea of who gets to define blackness. And that's something that's been on my mind for uh, the last couple of weeks. I look around and I look at news stories and it just appears that the people who say they are representing black voices just seems to not be the same people that I would say represent me and others out there who I know 
are going through circumstances that is not reflective in the rhetoric that they hear from these commentators, these, um, these politicals, these media people who think that they actually have a perspective about us. And then you couple that with black men. And in today's world, once again, who gets to define blackness? When you couple that with black men, the question becomes, is there any type of defining that's even in place when it comes to black men? When you look around right now these days, there's there only appears to be a very singular perspective that a lot of it is based on respectability politics, is based on a kind of a Wall Street corporatist mindset. And none of these things fully represent the broad range of voices, the broad range of images that Black men represent in America. Now, we all know, because we see it all the time, and I think we're most conscious of the fact of saying that we're not thug images all the time. We're not, um, you know, we're, we're not the, the, the corporate, you know, uh, guy who, you know, who's quiet or we're not the image, you know, in the show who that, that the guy that gets killed off early on in a movie, right? Mm -hmm. We're more than that. And what I hope brother bill dollar bill is that, um, we get to represent that in our conversations here today and in infinitum. So I'll stop there and let's just kind of spend a bit of time on what you brought up, my brother, because I think that that is so essential to what we're seeing out there today. You know, I'll say this. Um, you and I have had these conversations with Black men for decades, man, since we were teenagers around, you know, the way we're perceived by the world. And, you know, I used to joke and say, man, you know, when I sat around with other cats, man, how many, you know, I would ask this question, like, how many of you all, when you started your first job, if there was a basketball team, they immediately came to you and said, do you want to be on our basketball team? Right. They never even saw you hoop before. Absolutely. But because you black. Hey, man, you want to be on the basketball team of mine? Come on, man. How many brothers do you know and I know who people just came up to and immediately asked them that question, right? They drew that inference. Now, for the record, every brother don't hoop, right? Right. <laughs> right. right. You know, um, and I'll tell you, it when it happened to me, I'll be blunt. Yeah, I did play on the team. <laughs> All right. But um, the, but the fact that that was the first thing, one of the first things that happened when I started this particular job at an all white organization where I was the only black, that was the first thing that was like, that was the icebreaker in a way. Cause the, the other white cats that had had this company team came to me and just said, Hey man, you want to be on the team? And all I could think of was y'all brothers ain't never even seen me who. Y'all don't even know if I can play. 
but okay. <laughs> so, but it's, it's the images, man. And I always feel like we still are seen in a certain way as thugs and, you know, entertainers, um, et cetera. Right. You know, yeah. and okay. we're way more than that. Absolutely. I, I want to jump in here. I, I want to, you know, take a moment to, to really personalize this myself. I mean, obviously, you know, I played basketball, um, played it at uh, a high level. And one of the things that I've always felt uncomfortable with is, you know, being a pretty good basketball player, but knowing that that as a default description of me would would take away from a much broader aspect of who I was. Um, my personality was much more than that. And I remember, man, I used to actually feel uncomfortable. So even when I went to college, you know, you know, I, I won't, I don't need to go into detail, but you know, I had a, a, a very unsuccessful college basketball career. But one of the reasons for that was because I had other interests. Um, you know, I gave up basketball early in college and I decided to do other things. And some of those other things were uh, joining the, the school newspaper and eventually running the, you know, the first uh, black student newspaper for the college. Mm. Um, you know, I was, I ran you know, I ran for a, uh, a school-wide uh, office. Um, I was appointed to, um, I guess they they called it the judiciary. And so, like, I was very active. Um, once I decided to kind of move away from that very kind of narrow scope that wasn't necessarily reflective of who I, wa who I am. Now, I, I just want to bring that in there. I don't want to spend a lot of time there. I actually want to follow up to a larger question uh, that I hear you pose. And uh, that is, I, I, would, I want to throw this back at you and say this. Do you think it could be that the rhetoric that you hear coming from us as a response to that, you know, we black men, because like you said, we hear this all the time, that we we want to guard and defend our image by by saying we're more than that, you know, show, you know, you guys need to show that we're more than that. But I'm wondering, Dollar Bill, is this a uh, is this an inside job? Is this just simply something that for us as black men that we just need to shift our consciousness and really focus in on just being the best version of who we are and not getting caught caught up in the respectability respectability politics of imagery because this is the last thing i'll say on this because there are some dangers with that and i've seen some of those dangers play off I'll give you a real quick example when the George Floyd incident happened, I remember seeing someone, someone sent me a video of these brothers, these young brothers, man, who had all dressed up. It was about 30 of them. They were looking super dapper, right? And they all dressed up and they went for a walk 
you know, down the streets of a city. And part of what they were doing was trying to show the image of black men. They were trying to upgrade the image of black men. Mm-hmm. Though I get that, I think there's something dangerous about putting uh, ourselves in the hands of others who may not ever want to perceive us other than what we are, uh, excuse me, what we are not. Um, so I think it's really up to us to shift that state of consciousness. What do you think? Well, here's what I do know. We come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. We're tall, we're short, we're fat, we're skinny. We're intellectuals, we're non-intellectuals. We're readers, we're non-readers. We're hoopers, we're non-hoopers. You know, we're light, we're dark. Come in all these different shades. And each one of them, in my opinion, and that's what it is, my opinion, is relevant in terms of the life that we've all been trying to create for ourselves. I mean, you know, this podcast was born out of the concept of five-fifths, right? The wholeness of a man versus the three-fifths of a man who at one point in the Constitution is how we were viewed. And I've always been felt that we were men of substance, of quality, of character. You know, um, the original slaves that came here, if anyone knows slave history, they really couldn't do too much with those first original slaves that came here because they fought. They fought back. They rebelled. They did everything they could do to not be slaves. But when they had kids, they raised those kids as slaves. So they didn't know any other way because they had never tasted freedom. Mm-hmm. And that was how they were able to take generation after generation after generation of Black American and turn them into slaves. Because if you raise someone a certain way and bring them up in a certain environment so that they don't know any other way, you have a very, very, very good chance of being able to control them and making them do whatever it is you need them to do. That's why they couldn't do nothing with the Native American Indians. For one of the reasons was, for one, they knew the, the, the landscape. They knew how to navigate the land. You brought Africans to a foreign country where they didn't know anything about the land and, or how to escape or where to go. It took years before people were able to escape and figure out, I need to go somewhere else other than here to escape slavery. I guess, man, my thing I'll come back to is, as I said before, today my my battle cry is I'm Black and I'm proud. Because on some level, um, I wonder, and even in our own community, is Blackness seen as something that's positive? You know, we we have plenty of folks out here they walk around and they always, you know, uh, they, they want to say I'm mixed or I'm something else other than black. Right. Um, you know, and I won't call out names, but still people, there are still people like me. I'm an American black man. I did my ancestry.com uh, DNA. Yes, I did. I did do that because I was curious. But, uh, and it's like most black Americans, I have white blood and because of uh, the rape of 
uh, the black, you know, in my fa- I, in my situation, I can trace it. So I will say right. that it was not consensual. It was right. definitely a a white slave owner who raped uh, his black slave woman. Right. So and I'm just father kids. So I'm just her. I'm just wondering. Oh. Sorry about that, man. I thought I closed that off. Um, so I'm just wondering whether, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, race is a social construct, you know, now people will say that and they, they will say that as a way of kind of watering down the significance of race and identity uh, in American life. It's a, it's a, it's an easy way to kind of put that out there um, to, to kind of give a very rosy view of what's possible. Right. Um, I don't buy that. However, you know, I do think to your question about identity, I do think in today's world, especially as we are engaged in heavily in identity politics, I wonder whether that is a reflection of the lack of self-esteem around your sense of identity. Because, you know, you see us wear our blackness on everything. Like we wear our blackness like on our sleeve, um, you know, um, T-shirts, like, you know, I remember back in the day it was black by popular demand, but now, you know, those type of things are like tenfold, like everything, you know, even when you travel, you can be in another country, man, then it's all, you know, you'll see a group of, you know, black folks or, you know, and they're, you know, they have shirts that says, you know, um, black and you can't do anything about it. Black traveler, you can't do anything about it. Like there's, there's always this need to show your identity and to magnify it, even when it's not relevant to a situation. So I just kind of see that as a form of um, identity crisis, as a um, form of, of a lack of self-esteem. Let me, let me put something back on you because you and I have often talked about, and we said it before on this podcast, you know, you grew up in the Fillmore district of San Francisco. I grew up in the heart of inner city Detroit, Michigan. The difference though in our upbringing was where I grew up, the neighborhood that I grew up was all black. Right. There was basically maybe one white family and they didn't stay around that long. Mm-hmm. Um, all my schools from elementary school to middle school to junior high school were always all black. I never had any Latin, Asian, white students until I got to high school. You had a different upbringing in the Fillmore. You had black, white, Asian, Latin. Talk to me, man, about, you know, that perception in terms of identity as you're growing up and you've got friends who are Asian and Latin. Because I've even remember talking to you a few times about the cast that you grew up with that are Asian and Latin and other races. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because growing up in San Francisco did feel a, a bit unique in that, you know, you were from this historically black neighborhood that had a lot of pride, had a lot of culture, 
but it wasn't an isolated community. Uh, it was, it bordered uh, other communities right smack that dab in the middle of the city. And plus, I think San Francisco overall, the, the, the over, the, the kind of the overwhelming culture of San Francisco was of kind of this, this melting pot, this diverse melting pot. That was kind of the, the flavor of the city. So, you know, the ideal of having these very, very tight borders uh, just wasn't the case. And plus, you know, I was in a neighborhood that was not isolated like a lot of what they call East, you know, East side neighborhoods mm-hmm. are, you know, like, you know, I went, I went everywhere in the city, but when, by the time I was 10, I, you know, I had taken the bus to almost everywhere in the city. So to answer your question, um, it's kind of a both and because I had a very strong sense of identity and pride because of the Fillmore was a cultural Mecca, but, you know, I went to a Chinese school when I was, you know, when I was in the fourth grade, uh, third grade, um, then transferred because I was bust. I was transferred to all white area. So definitely had to find ways how to interact with a much broader range of people. The impact of that is interesting because as I grow older or have, when I grow in, grew into adulthood, you know, I would be around, you know, folks that did come from the, the, the Detroits or, you know, uh, the Atlantis of the world. And um, there were always some comments around how comfortable I felt kind of navigating through different spheres of ethnicity. And so I, I think that was one aspect that just kind of showed up, but nothing, you know, nothing too, it was pretty benign, no, not, nothing too uh, intense. You know, I just go back to, I remember, man, I was in college and I was taking a class and I remember it was a white professor and it was a sociology class. And I remember he talked about, and he, you know, professor was white, right? And the class was mixed, Um, had some black students, white students, Asian, you know, everyone and he talked about why is it that when you see a young black boy and he used an example of like nine or ten years old if he's walking around with his pants hanging around his ankles and his hat is turned backwards it's like why within a matter of days all the other boys white asian they would try to emulate him Right? Am I am I wrong? Not at all. And I remember thinking that, okay, here's this white dude telling this story of, and you can look at it in general culture, right? Because it's not a it's not a hidden fact that the black community drives fashion, right? So I don't think that's anything new. That's easy. Gym shoe, that's easy, right? That's easy. And you know, matter everyone from Madison Avenue to Wall Street and everybody in between has figured that out, that you put your product, if it's fashion oriented in the hands of somebody black, it's probably gonna take off. But I remember him saying it and I remember sitting there thinking like, wow, okay, that's true. You know, cause you could put this young black kid and he's got his pants down on his ankles 
and his hat turned backwards. You put him in a group of white and Asian and Latin kids, within a matter of days, they dress him and they're trying to act like him. And you know how powerful that is? Right. And I used to say, don't think white America or America in general sees that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we got to do something to control that. Because anyone who's been around young black kids and has seen how they operate around other kids, if that kid has any ounce of charisma, that's what will happen. And for men, it's it's dangerous, Ahmad. And I think they know it. Absolutely. Because the fact that that man can control that and influence people in that way like, like I, I will tell you, I had a conversation with an Asian man who told me, and you know, again, this is this is just my own, this is my own story. I don't expect this to be everyone's story, but this this is a story that was told to me. And he had a teenage daughter who started dating a black guy. And he came to me. Because he said, man, I'm noticing, you know, changes in my daughter, the way she wanted to dress. And it wasn't seductive or anything like that. But he says, like, my daughter, all of a sudden, she went from being nerdy to now she's kind of cool. But she said, but he said, the other thing that happened is her brother, my son. All of a sudden, this dude started dating his daughter, his daughter. And all of a sudden, now his son wants the kind of clothes, which will look, let's just say they were hip, right? Without giving out brands and all that, they were hip. And all of a sudden, he's like, Bill, man, my kid wants some $150 gym shoes now all of a sudden, right? (laughs) And I just said, man, you know how powerful that is? Yeah. And it's just a regular kid. Yeah. Our culture is, it is powerful like that. So, so Dollar Bill, one of the things that you talked about is this whole idea around, you know, owning our own imagery. I mean, I mean, how does that take place when, or at a time when, and you mentioned earlier, you know, um, we have so much cultural influence that it often turns into capital. And that capital then is co-opted by uh, financial forces that can that can pay for it. So how do you go by kind of owning the sense of image of ourselves? You know, the real truth around that, and I'll give my own example. Like, you know me, man, probably when you first met me, man, I was wearing flip flops every day. Right. And flip-flops, shorts, and T-shirt, mm-hmm. linen shirt, man. That, that's kind of my standard attire. Mm-hmm. You you probably won't see me wearing, uh, you know, any African uh, uh, wear or, you know, I'm, you know, I'm black and I'm proud T-shirt. You know, it's just like I told someone, it's the same reason why I don't wear NFL or MLB or NBA jersey with another man's name on the back. I hear you on that. So how do we do that, man? So I feel like how we do it is, again, for me, 
again, I'm going to just say how I look at this is that you just have to be original and unique to yourself, whatever that looks like for you. And if again, I'm not knocking men that want to wear an NFL jersey and put, you know, Bo Jackson on the back, right? Or whatever they want to do. I mean, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying for me, here's what I'm saying, I guess, Ahmad. When I don't do what you do, don't criticize me for me being the kind of black man that I want to be. If I want to wear flip-flops and I want to wear t-shirts and linen shirts and shorts, let me be me. And not say that and say I'm not black enough or I'm not something else enough because I don't fit into this thing. Like I don't own a pair of Yeezys, right? Not and never will own a pair of Yeezys. I'm gonna just wear whatever I want to wear that makes me feel comfortable. And I'm also gonna, but I'm very proud of my identity and who I am as a black man. I hope that's what you yeah, so what, to get at. Yeah, so what sticks out to me in that statement that you said there, because I, I agree with you, the challenge, I mean, you made the statement, essentially you were pushing back on uh, the zeitgeist, mainly the black zeitgeist who play respectability politics and saying, don't you judge me, right? But the reality is that they are going to judge, and I'm saying, should it matter? Because I, I think if I was to, you know, you and I are on, on the same page on this, partly, I would add is I'm just going to do me, you know, I'm going to show up uh, in the most uh, authentic way that re- reflects my own sense of agency in the world. Mm-hmm. And um even though we definitely need defenders out there around our image, but I don't want us spending our time trying to convince people how they should see us. I think the power is in just breaking away from how we think we're perceived and just being who we are in the most authentic form, being on your own journey, having that sense of purpose, having that sense of in- integrity and ethics, and trust the process. Because I, I guess that's one aspect of it. The other, I would say, is that, I mean, you do kind of see branding that goes along with certain identity groups. Like, you know, I think black women now today, you know, they, they have their identity that's around black girl magic, you know, and then I, I just saw the other day, they got, they even got a black girl magic wine. <laughs> you know, Wait, so, say what? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> black girl know, magic wine. They got wine, man. They got a black girl magic Cabernet. <laughs> okay, man. Wow. But, But, you know, nonetheless, I mean, look, kudos for, you know, finding ways to uh, to counter whatever images and make some money and make some money off of it. Right. I, I, you know, I wouldn't put that. I wouldn't want black men to follow that route. 
You know, I I don't think we need to have a bunch of platitudes and and to kind of go around, you know, with our own, um, you know, um, uh, collective identities that represent something that probably it doesn't represent anyway. (laughs) You know, Matt, Um, Matt, okay, I'm going to do a a second version of five on the black hand side rant. Go at ahead. the end okay. all right so man this is something that irked me this just happened recently so i have a friend who is a single mom who has a young black son uh in the bay area 10 years old and man you know she's talking to me about trying to find mentoring programs for him. And I'm like, okay, well, let me get out here. Let me see what kind of programs are out here. You know, and there are a few, there are a few, and this is a smart kid, right? So, you know, it's a single mom, you know, this is a kid that, you know, she worked hard to get this kid the best school, the best training, you know, he's, he's in a you know good program where he's learning, but man, do you realize with all these, you know, black male organizations, here in the Bay Area, there are very few, and I can count them on one hand, young black male mentoring programs that I could find of substance. And I thought that was just a travesty, man. I really did. Well, we could we I'm sorry, go for it. I just I just felt like, you know, with you know, we're known for having all of these programs, right? And you got, you know, the the 100 black men, you've got the boule, you've got, you know, the black fraternities and on and on and on, right? A lot of these black, you know, uh, black data processors, black lawyers, black doctors, right? You got all of these black programs and you mean to tell me, man, I can't really find a good young black male mentoring program for young boys. That, that hurt me, man. Because well, I said, well, what are what are we doing? Well, I think I think part of it is it it goes to what we spoke about with uh, Ashante Branch um, in our in our last podcast, and that if our audience have not heard or listened to our podcast with Ashante Branch, they should. Yes. Yes. Um, however, when we were talking, I think I brought up to him. This ideal of the pushback that comes from funding sources, foundations, yes. um, for not necessarily investing um, in all black male uh, programs, like mentoring programs, because anything where black men are um, assembled together without it being co-ed is considered to be a form of toxic masculinity. Mm. It's, it's, it's considered to be part of the development of toxic masculinity. Like there's not a, a trust and belief that, um, that we have the capacity to develop young boys in a way in which they will, would be good responsible citizens um, for whatever that means. Um, and so I think what I heard very clearly from Ashante and from 
from other, and he was really, I mean, he mentioned it, but he, you know, he tried to make sure that he wasn't, you know, too intensely critiquing because, you know, he has to count on these funding sources out there. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, there are three or five different mentoring organizations that I know that say that they struggle to find funding, even though they're running programs that would be at the top of anyone's uh, metrics in terms of uh, their outcomes. But because it's all black male and you can have all, you know, all girls programs like all day, but apparently this is something that um, that's, that's not seen in the same light, you know, unless, unless there's co-ed participation. You know, one of the things you and I talked about when we started this podcast is that we refuse to play the victim, right? right. And sound like I'm a victim or anything. Right. And as you know, I started a youth nonprofit organization, but it's co-ed, yep. you know? And every year I would let in an equal number of young boys and young girls. Mm-hmm. And I always remember something and you look, man, this, this is what we had. I feel like this is the real conversations. And I and it was you know founded by me obviously a black male and you know I had volunteers that came in every color spectrum and you knew this Amaya you 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 were one of the first brothers I went to sure. when I wanted to start the Wall Street Wizards program I've told you that on many occasions man you were after my mother <laughs> you was the next <laughs> brother that I called I told you know. You and you literally said, "Hey, man, you came back to me with a three-page plan. Like this is what you want to do." And but what I also realized as I was learning that process, because I'd never run a nonprofit or been like a part of a startup with nonprofit, is how the world looked at a black male founder slash executive director of a program. They looked at me a lot differently than a white woman or or a black woman or oh, Asian yeah. woman uh, for going sure. into the community trying to do a program, you know? And I remember I was always questioned with things that I thought were just ridiculous, but I'd never get mad. I sat in a funding meeting. See, this is the things that, you know, we, we talk about behind closed doors and sure. when we say it, people look at us like, what, really? Yep. And one of them was, I remember uh, a white dude told me, uh, you need to get a white woman to be a director of development to help you raise money. And I was like, say what? <laughs> and he said, you're not going to get any money as a black man. You better get a white woman to help you go out and raise money. And I remember sitting there thinking, really? But then... I talked to a couple of other organizations who had hired white women. Oh yeah. To be the directors of development to go out. And, and for those listening on the podcast, if you don't know what a director of development is for a nonprofit, basically that's the person that goes out and raises your money to get your money. Yeah. I mean, I, I blew I think, my mind. My, yeah. Blew I, my think, mind. I think that if you were to look at, uh, if you were to pull up a list of, random nonprofits who are considered to be, you know, kind of middle to high functioning organizations. And if you were to pull the, you know, who's the director of development, you know, you would, you, you would see the white female. I mean, that that's the job that's perfectly 
made for her, you know? And so I, I totally agree with that, man. It's, it's, uh, it's something that's unfortunately embedded into, um, the culture. So it's funny because when, when we start talking about things like, you know, whether there is, you know, institutional or systemic, you know, racism, you know, and th- those are two terms that I don't, I don't really use a lot, either. you know, yeah, um, and, but, you know, we don't, we have a tendency to not look at, um, the example that you provided, <laughs> you know, because you see it consistently. I mean, what the guy told you is exactly that. It tells you that it has some type of like institutional, uh, cultural um, um, significance, you know, that plays into, you know, how one becomes success. But to your point, we're not victims. And, 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 I, and I'm saying that not because there are not victims out there, because I don't, I don't want to, you know, no, that's right. Turn my nose yeah. to anyone who who that's experienced right. that, whether it's in the most offensive form or whether it's in the most um, subtle uh, form, subtle benign form. Yeah. But the reality is, and that that's why I brought up earlier whether we should spend our attention saying this is how they perceive us and really just focus in on how we perceive ourselves, how we function in the world, because there's some energy and there's some sense of control and freedom around that, that allows for itself to play out in, in a better mindset. Um, also in a better, uh, sense of efficacy for yourself and at the end of the day bill that's really the only way things are going to get done is when you have a commitment and purpose to believing in yourself that doesn't mean we don't need people it doesn't need that it doesn't mean that you know we can't count on others but the reality is is that we can't count on others to totally define who we are. And I just think that we do way too much of that. I think as a culture, we do too much of that. And I think uh, as black men, we don't do a lot of crime because black men take a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, we definitely internalize um, these factors. Oh, do we, man? You know, we we talk a lot about even you and I. You know, our, you know, we have our own de facto therapy sessions. Absolutely. Where we just sometimes we get around and we rap, and I know that's one of the things, man. I'm really excited for our listeners to hear is that we're going to start bringing together forums of black men, groups of black men, where we're going to put different topics on the table where it just won't be me and Ahmad. It'll be right. a group of other black men that we get this broad perspective. Um, and I'm, I'm telling you, man, I'm really excited to be doing that. I know that's something that I'm actually looking forward to because you know, there's something, I'm gonna tell you, man, I know you've seen it. 
is something powerful that happens when you put a group of black men in a room and you take down the veil, you take down the, the inhibitions and you just let brothers talk. Yep. And I'm gonna tell you, man, you've been in those rooms. I know I've been in them. Me and you've been in them rooms together. We've been in those together. Actually, you know, I want you to go on, but yeah, you and I have been in those rooms where, you know, I remember there were, there's been times when we've, we've had straight, no chaser conversations. And I would look around and say, man, okay, these are five black men sitting here holding each other accountable mm-hmm. and hearing our feelings and our our pain points and all these type of things, man. And I was just proud of those moments that we had. But sorry, go ahead. But you don't, but you know what I was about to say, man. Every time I've been in those meetings and I've been in them for years, we always got up, gave each other some dap. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Hugged it out. You know, brother, and that's another thing, man. Like, don't you notice when you're around your other non-black friend, like when me and you see each other, yep. I'm giving you some dap, giving you some hug, giving you the handshake. And you notice when it's, you know, your other yep. non-black friend, they want to do the same thing. They look at like, I want some of that. <laughs> <laughs> Show me how to do that. How you do that, Bill Ahmad? What, what is it a handshake? And I'm being it's, comical about no, it. You're, you're right. But you're dude, right now. Yep. Come on. Yep. And, and you know, but see, that goes back. Amon, that's why I brought up that example of influence right. and how powerful we are. Because the things that we do, people tend to emulate them, whether it's food, fashion, music, culture. Oh, yeah. It's a very powerful thing when you've got a black man. That's why on some level, they probably looking at us and like, man, we got to try to break them dudes down because you can't have a dude have that kind of influence and power. And I always think about the strong black men. And look, sometimes brothers do stupid stuff and shoot themselves in the foot, Right. Literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively, right? <laughs> but, you know, I, I and again, I'm just going to use some names just because these are names that yeah. are very powerful, influential. But like Bill Cosby, Kanye West, you know, on and on and on. These are men that were very powerful, Ahmad, and influential. And toward somewhere in there, they always make these cats out to be crazy or something else, Right. right. Like right now, everybody looking at Kanye West and they're like, that dude is crazy, right? Right. And But look at the influence that brother had from no music, but, culture. I think part of that, though, is the over-reliance on entertainers yes. and, um, and athletes as kind of the end-all source for what is considered to be cool, relevant. The spokesperson. Um, the spokesperson. And so really, when I, when you think of a Bill Cosby or even a Kanye West, I'll use their examples, um, I don't necessarily think that that is anything out of the ordinary when you mm-hmm. think about the fact that 
in that space, in the entertainment space, you know, you're dealing with artists who are uh, eccentric and, um, and unpredictable when it comes to um, what aspect of themselves gets to show up. You know, remember, they are entertainers, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're a culture that puts so much emphasis on that, it's almost like you're willing to live or die with how they show up. Like it, it gets me when, you know, a black entertainer does something and, you know, a black person has to feel this sense of um, a pain, like, 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 you know, the race or, you know, our images has, had been damaged by the acts of one person, mm-hmm. you know, to me, this is just all over-reliance. To tell you the truth, man, you know, I'm just not really in that deeply on identity politics, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, and one of the things that is somewhat existential for me right now is saying to myself, you know, how can I value my lineage and, um, and imagine a future um, that doesn't fully embed itself in some of the what I refer to as kind of the the black uh, hegemonic um, um, okay man you know I went to public school now brother come on now. You're using them big words hegemonic well, help me out well <laughs> the you know what what gets to be the kind of um, predominant uh, um, source of conveyance Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, one voice, essentially, that that stands for all. Mm-hmm. And in our culture, that that happens. But it's a it's an illusion because we know that there are multiple voices and multi, like you said earlier, you know, we come in all shapes and sizes. But that's not what gets represented, mm-hmm. you know, in the cultural zeitgeist, mm-hmm. you know, and so because of that you know, our responses, I know that my response these days um, has really led me into a place of trying to determine, you know, what does it mean for me to be in a world today in which I am fully expressed and I am holding on to lineage, but at the same time, I am, I am, decoupling myself away from what I call kind of the hegemonic culture of blackness Mm -hmm. in America today, which I don't like, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, now people, if people don't, I want to get clear because I don't want people to, to misread what I'm saying. The hegemonic um, culture that's being presented doesn't mean that that is black culture it just means it's what becomes a predominant voice in the culture and that's what i reject well said well said feel more black well said <laughs> so man we're we're we've we've wrapped for a moment here so i want you if you don't mind dollar bill um let, let's see if we can kind of wrap this up because we went in so many different angles here. Um, So what did this conversation do for you 
to help you think about what your original rant was? I mean, is there any process, any, any, um, any takeaways from this conversation based on what your original rant was? Well, I let it off with, I was feeling my James Brown vibe. Yep. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And what that came from was a culture in America on some level right now that has made it almost to a point where I can't be proud to be the man that I am. Yeah. And yet that's the banner that I want to continue to hold high is that I am proud to be a black man. I, I remember, I tell people this all the time, as hard as it is being a black man in America, man, I wouldn't want to be anything else. I wouldn't. I'm not Absolutely. one of the cats that want to be lighter because you and I met them. Yep. We met them. Yep. I've met brothers that have told me in confidence, I wish I was white or I wish I was a light skin. I've heard women say it too, not just yeah. men, women too. Yeah. And I remember thinking that's got to be the worst life for you to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I want to be somebody else based on the color of your skin. I would, I can't, that, that to me is a fate worse than death. It really is to me because I, I look in the mirror and I'm proud of the man that I am flaws and all. And I want that to be the battle cry for other particularly young boys, because you and I know in with social media now, you've got cyberbullying and all these other things. And again, this is about the black man conversation, right? That I know that there are young boys out here who have been bullied. And I hear because I hear stories from my friends' kids, and they talk about how these, you know, kids are bullying uh, other black boys and girls too, but black boys around, they too dark or something like that, man. And again, you and I grew up around that, but, but now with the internet and social media, man, people can hide behind it so much easier now. Like when me and you was on the playground, right? You know where I'm going with this, Fillmore. When you and I on the playground and some dude roll up on you and call you darky or something like that, you could drop him on the spot, <laughs> right? Boom. Yep. End of that discussion. Hey, give me my dodgeball. Time to go back and play. <laughs> but see, you, now cats can hide behind stuff. Yeah. They can hide behind Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and social media. And they can post and do all kinds of things and be bullies in yep. a way that was never possible before. And it's almost so hard to control. And I, I call them, they call it cyber bullying. I call them cyber cowards. Right. Well, brother, I, I, I agree with you. And I, and my kind of my parting words would be this is that um, definitely uh, would not want to be anything than a black man in the world. Um, I would like to see the black man evolve, truly evolve. Um, when I say that, I'm not saying that in a 
esoteric sense. I'm talking about really taking steps to create self-agency and independence to a degree where the Black man becomes its own uh, independent um, uh, source of being in the world, you know, um, almost to a point where, you know, we don't, we shouldn't even be categorized with anyone anymore I, i'm i'm cool with checking black mail you know on on a on a you know on whatever that's how much now i don't like checking anything i'm just saying but yeah me i know but, i know what you mean you know I but know if i had to that that's because i think the identity of black men um should be so solely created as its own um form and, and that's because we can't count on anyone else in the world to form it with. And so um, we can have, we can have relationships and connections to many other people out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to negotiate the nature of that through our own sense of independence. So well that brother, we have spoken a lot and perhaps, you know, we have gone off in different directions, but I think um, that what you post earlier really set the tone. So I want to thank you, my brother, for getting us down this slippery road and then landing in a nice pool of cool. <laughs> well, hey, man, I just say you're welcome, but this is what this podcast is built on, right? Honest unapologetic conversations and what and what i hope for people that listen there's no right or wrong right you know these are my opinions these are mods opinions you know and when i say right or wrong what i mean is people can always draw their own conclusions because i draw my own conclusions from things that i hear people say but what i hope it does is stimulates conversation it stimulates thought, it stimulates awareness around things around you. And if you have a black male in your life, if you're a black woman, support that brother, love that brother, don't beat him down, you know, try to talk to him, right? If it's your son, your husband, your brother, your nephew, talk to that young man, you know, cause trust me, there's things going on with him that it's hard for him to articulate sometimes. And sometimes all he might need is just that voice to, 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 to talk, have that honest conversation and help him find other quality black men. You know, yep. men, you know, and that's the one thing, Ahmad, that I know is, I, I hear it all the time. It's hard for men to develop friendships. And I do believe that men, you see how women, they always got their crew, right? They can travel seven, eight, nine, 10 deep. Man, me and you walk into a bar with seven, eight, nine, 10 brothers, they think we're about <laughs> to rob the joint, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So, so, and again, that goes back to images, man. Absolutely. So, hey brother, this was a great conversation because that's what I want all these to be, man. I know we've talked about this these are conversations between two men that we just want to stimulate conversation and thought, as I said before, 
in your own environment for the people that are listening. Right on, brother. Well, brother, you have a wonderful day, and I look forward to connecting with you next week. Yes, sir. All Peace. right. Peace and love. <laughs>